Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 228 of the Quickie Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and thanks so much for being here. Today on the show, I have a guest that has been mentioned a number of times by other guests on this show as uh, an influential person to them, somebody that they they follow the work of, they look up to the work of, and are inspired by the work of. And when I first learned of this very talented freelance graphic designer illustrator, um, I was uh, I was intrigued, mainly by the Instagram handle, which led me to go, well, I got to look at it now. And um, so who is this? My guest today on the show is Anthony Petri, although you may know him as Zombie Bacons. You got to check that out. During this episode, we talk about design work going on toasters and garbage cans. We talk about Dunkaroos and other nostalgic, wonderful things. We also take a peek live at his Instagram, and I pick a couple of photos um, or posts there on Instagram that I ask him about, and I ask him to explain the story behind this, where did the project come from, and all that kind of stuff. We also get into why now this COVID time is is and has been the most challenging part of his career for him to sort of navigate. He then shares with us a bit about his time working in-house doing design at Nickelodeon and uh, growing his freelance business at the same time, a little side hustle business there. And then, of course, he shares in the end a project that he is a part of quite regularly and why he is so proud of it, what it allows him to do. Ladies and gentlemen, this episode is jam-packed and I really enjoyed chatting with Anthony and I know you are going to dig this. So let's get to it. My guest, Anthony Petri, also known as Zombie Bacons. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field, and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Anthony, welcome to the Quickie Podcast. How are you? Great, Dave. Thanks for uh, having me. Happy to have you, man. I got uh, a name like yours mentioned a few times on the show by some other guests, so I had to reach out, had to see what it was all about. That's surprising. Hopefully they weren't all negative. No, no, no. There's a couple <laughs> of positive ones mixed in there. Uh, all right. Well, that's good. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You have that same kind of reaction and feeling, you know, when people say, oh, the Quickie Podcast. I love the Quickie Podcast. You know, it's, really? <laughs> you sh- me? You sure? Okay. <laughs> yeah, like, why, why do you even know who I am? I never even leave my apartment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah. you're this huge name and persona. <laughs> oh, please. Jesus. Nice. Uh, Anthony, before I get too deep, are you ready for a quickie? Always. Let's, let's sort of fit a few of them in there. Why not? Why not? So let's start with the tough stuff, then briefly tell the listeners about yourself. Uh, my name is Anthony Petri. I am a freelance designer based in L.A., and uh, I make them all those things that you like. 
<laughs> Boom. That's it. <laughs> I didn't see your drop just, mic. Yeah, time. I just read off my about me part of my social media profile there. <laughs> I work. <laughs> I work. I work primarily in like the consumer product industry. That's really kind of the the job. That's for movies and TV shows and basically all of the crap that you see at Target and Walmart is is kind of comes from the stuff that I do mostly. Um, if you've heard of my name before, it's more than likely because I do uh, screen printed movie posters and 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 the like, and probably you've seen my Jaws poster at some point. Awesome. So. Would you say that the stuff that you're working on spans digital, print, like all mediums? You're all over the place? I would say that I deal little with actual print in the, in the, the corporate work that I do because this, the work that I do is more branding and creative direction based. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on kind of the overall look for a brand, a movie, a TV show that – those assets then get disseminated to other product designers who are then going to take those assets and design with them, make products with them. So Mm -hmm. I'm not designing the physical products all the time. However, because I have experience in that area, I have to keep those problems and applications and manufacturing processes in the back of my mind, in the back of my mind as I'm making the actual designs that will be used in the future. Mm -hmm. Good point. Yeah. Because whatever you're creating is sort of the overall brand and feel for this show or for this movie needs to be able to be produced in digital and physical mediums in a number of different ways. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's all consumer products. So that could span from soft goods. Like it could be artwork that's on a bed sheet or a blanket or it can be printed on a toaster. It could become a toy. It can be used on packaging or retail. Like it's it's got to be versatile enough, and to be able to be is kind of like reverse engineering a puzzle mm-hmm. in a way where anyone can then take these pieces and put them together however they want to, and it still gets the final image. Yeah. Um, so I don't, you know, in some cases I do work on the actual designing of the products as well mm-hmm. and um and figuring out the the manufacturing and print portions of that but for the most part these days uh not so much it's, it's mostly like overall creative direction that's done digitally like 99 percent of the time yeah so you so you glossed over something pretty quick that i'm gonna have to rewind to and touch on briefly here okay <laughs> okay how many of the projects you've worked on have ended up on a toaster Oh, there. I, the you know the the tough thing is is like I'll do these guides and these this creative direction. And I, it's unless I go out actively searching for the products, like I don't really see mm-hmm. every single thing that's made with them because some stuff get to be store exclusives or they're in Target for a limited amount of time, and I just didn't yeah. go that month. Or, but I imagine there has to be. Oh, toasters. I'm not totally sure. I've seen my artwork on garbage cans. Nice office garbage cans, and I think that really like put things in perspective to me about how important the work that I do is. <laughs> it is moving the most amount of garbage cans ever. <laughs> I think it was a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle trash can, and I actually saw it in a dumpster. That's a so, yeah. The symbolism on that. It yeah, that one hurt a little bit, but you know, 
the paycheck was good. So I'm not <laughs> yeah, the paycheck was good. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, Anthony, I want to kick this one back a little bit and I want to talk to you a little bit about your childhood and what that was like. Do you feel that you had a creative childhood that pointed you in this career direction? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, my parents were obviously very supportive of that, um, early on, um, giving me the tools physically to be able to create and draw and foster that environment of creativity, but then also, you know, allowing me to go and, and learn by taking courses and classes and eventually going to school for it. So yeah, the creativity is kind of, that was always going to be the plan. Mm -hmm. So was there an an aunt or an uncle or somebody who was already in that field that could kind of pull you along, show you the ropes, help you along the way? Or did this all just kind of happen with your interests and that's what you pursued because that was your interest? Yeah, that that's pretty much no one in my family that's really creative at all. Um, They're all pretty much a blue collar working class Mm -hmm. family. So, you know, I'm fortunate that they saw the value in uh, art and creativity and design to be able to want to support that and not be like, what the fuck is this kid (laughs) thinking like and being disappointed? They were. But I will say, like, once I got into college and I was bringing back my like handset typography things they were like what are we paying for this is ridiculous but um you know for the most part you know that was just a product of being i think a child of the 80s -hmm. in a way like and seeing all of those just crazy pop culture things that were so relevant at the time whether it be cartoons or toys or literally anything that existed back then and just wanting to be a part of that in in some way but not connecting the dots early on enough to being like oh i could do this one day i just wanted Mm. to draw stuff really dude i had a you're making me like reminisce a little bit on my elementary school days when (laughs) i had a ninja turtles lunchbox it was kind of this like tall plastic container one where it kind of opened in the middle but ninja turtles on it Mm -hmm. what year what year were you born if you don't mind me asking uh, 82. I think any any small boy in the 80s probably had a Teenage Mutant Turtle lunchbox at some point in their lives. That yeah, with man. fruit roll-ups inside. Yeah, Lunchables, everything. <laughs> All the good stuff from back in the day. Yeah. And Gushers. Were you a Gushers fan? Oh, yeah. Gushers. I like the shark bites also, the little shark gummies. Except oh, yeah. the, I didn't like the white shark because it was gross, but the rest of them were always good. Last but not least, Dunkaroo, <laughs> Dunkaroos, right? Uh, I've had them before, but they weren't a big staple. No, oh, they were they were regular in the regular in the old lunchbox of the Hopkins. Uh, I think my mom my mom drew the line at, at Dunkaroos. I think <laughs> it wasn't really a snack; it was more like dessert for lunch every day. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably why I wasn't allowed to have it. I had the <laughs> I had the the boring cheese and crackers version of Dunkaroos, whereas that like shitty cheese with like the the little red spoon. And oh yeah, 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 I remember those. Yeah, that was that was my Dunkaroos. And then they came out with like the stick version, where it was like breadsticks that you're mini breadsticks that you're dipping in the cheese. Oh yeah, I do remember those. Yeah. Yeah. Honest, I'm hungry now. <laughs> I'm gonna get some of that stuff. <laughs> so Anthony, is there a particular design, or maybe it's an illustration, or something that you saw along your early days in your schooling or, or getting into this career that you saw and just really stuck with you? Yeah, I think aside from the obvious answer of 
toy packaging in the 80s, which literally everyone would reference and be inspired by. I think there's there's two things I remember distinctly. And I'm not sure if you are familiar with these, but the old novelty toy ads in the back of comics that used to sell like magic tricks or like stupid like junk novelty toys and they were they had these like like stupid illustrations and little text boxes no i and wish you'd, i was mail, familiar with that all right i'll have to send you a jpeg of, of what those are but you know you would mail away for you'd send a check and mail away for the the stupid little novelty things in the yeah. back of comic books and you get them in the mail, obviously, and they didn't look anything like what you <laughs> ordered. But it would take it would take months anyway, so you forgot that you even ordered it. Yeah, that like and along those same lines, the old horror pulp ads in the back of magazines that had like the mail away masks and like fake spiders and vampire teeth and stuff. I think that's that's an aesthetic that really stuck with me for for a long time. And aside from that, I think also I don't remember the old wax pack trading cards. Wax pack trading cards. Yeah, they were like this waxy outer paper coating, not coating, but like wrapper, and you would open them up and you'd have these like weird trading cards for just the most, just anything you can think of, like Star Wars and, okay. you know, um, Nintendo and, and anything else. But when you would open them, they have like a piece of gum inside of them. Nice. Like okay, really yes, hard, yes. Now really I know hard. what you're talking about. It was like a really hard, inedible stick of gum in the back that would ruin the cards. But yeah. like that, that always, like those two things definitely stick in my mind. I still remember opening up those packages of cards nowadays. Man, those are awesome. Did you ever, the sort of mail, mail away ordering in the back of comic books kind of reminds me of um, the Kool-Aid points. Did you ever collect Kool-Aid points? think so i couldn't tell you what i bought with them though they sound familiar yeah i remember as a kid my parents like always bought kool-aid and we would collect these kool-aid points off of each package and you add them up and then you go they obviously had to mail it somehow i think but they had this like catalog of things you could buy with these kool-aid points and you just mail them in and they would mail you back kool-aid stuff we had these like couple of kool-aid cups that we would always drink from with just like the kool-aid kool-aid man mugs that's awesome. It reminds me. Do you remember the Marlboro point, points? Like no. The cigarette Marlboro. That was a huge thing, and no one in my family smoked, so I don't even know why we had so many Marlboro <laughs> points. I think my dad used to just get the cigarettes off the back of a truck so we can get the points. Um, and you would get like like duffel bags with the Joe the Camel and like like these leather <laughs> jackets with the Joe the. Cam- there was the most inappropriate shit you've ever seen, and yeah. like of course I was walking around rocking. A Joe Camel leather jacket in the '90s for some reason. It was like nice, ten-year-old Anthony with this like sweet mm-hmm. Marlboro Camel jacket. <laughs> yeah, with like my Joe the Camel duffel bag over my shoulder, and somehow my parents allowed that. It was a weird time. The '80s and '90s <laughs> were a very weird time in the U.S. It was an awesome time. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fun, man. Um, so it's I, I'm looking forward to asking you this next question because this is how I was introduced to you and Zombie Bacon's your Instagram account where you're posting a lot of work. Um, who are some of the designers and brands, Anthony, that you look up to and closely follow, and what uh, is it about them that you like? Uh you know that's a, that's a tough one. A lot of my contemporaries, I think, uh, my my peers are. I also look up to in terms of inspiration and and not not only am i impressed and by their work but i also 
enjoy kind of competing with them in in, in sort of the in the same way friendly competition yeah it kind of boils down to that really but it's you know it's it's great to see everyone else succeed as well because a win for for one person in this industry is really a win for everyone but um you know it's it's, it's tough because you know you put me on the spot to try to think of of people that inspire me but uh, I mean, there's there, there's there's so many, but I I love a lot of like older artists that were kind of before my time that I kind of always go back to. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of a lot of the old Japanese Godzilla painters and oh yeah yeah and uh, Sergio Tapi and you know guys like Coop um, and that kind of like whole rock scene. That stuff to me is is kind of the stuff that I really gravitate towards as well as like the old ben cooper mask aesthetic from from the 80s i think if i'm just looking around my apartment and seeing the stuff that i actually have hanging up because i don't really collect a lot of artwork i just Mm -hmm. kind of buy the stuff that i i really like and i think jason edmiston is is widely represented on my walls um again coop is is kind of everywhere in my apartment uh i'm not sure if you talked to Chris Lee, at all, but I'm a huge fan of of his his whole aesthetic and branding, and I have tons of his prints everywhere. So that's just off the top of my head. Um, the the folks that really kind of no, inspire that's me awesome most. because it it just instantly creates a visual of this type of things that you're seeing and and that you're digging, you're really liking. Yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that you'll see that I gravitate towards is not what I do even remotely. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people that a lot of artists that kind of look up to other artists end up emulating them a lot. Mm -hmm. But for me, like I kind of gravitate towards the polar opposite kind of styles for me. I like really cutesy kind of character type stuff as well. Like I love Kristen Tercet's stuff, Cuddly Rigor Mortis. I have a few of her paintings uh, on my wall. Um, 100% soft, like a lot of that kawaii aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Um, those very simple boiled down illustrations and kind of cutesy stuff is is really uh, interesting to me, to me because you're able to it's very hard to break terms and characters into very simple illustrations and, and compositions and I think to me when I see very simplified work it's it's oftentimes a lot more work to get to that point than it would be to do like hyper-realistic stuff, mm-hmm. you know, which is weird because like most of my stuff is like horror <laughs> related or like hyper detailed and stuff. But like, I, I probably wouldn't hang any of my own stuff on, on my walls. <laughs> <laughs> you want to pull up? It's a, it, it's a, a very specific aesthetic is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. The next question I have for you is not listed and I literally just came up with this this morning and I'm going to dive in. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull up your Instagram account on my phone right now. Okay. And I'm going to find a couple of pictures that I want to ask you about. And oh, okay. I'm just going to show you them and I just want, I just want you to explain what's going on. Um, maybe it's a project, maybe it's, maybe it's something else. Um, sure. and just explain the story behind it. Okay. So I'm going to start with this one and, uh, it's cool because 
My wife and I were in this city uh, just a couple of years ago and absolutely fell in love with this, um, the city itself. But this is the one I want to ask you about. Oh, boy. Yeah, that one didn't go through, unfortunately. Oh, bummer. Okay, so tell me a little bit about this. How did it, how did it come up? What, uh, what's the story behind it? This was for a show at, uh, at Gallery at 1988 um, last year, and it was an, a licensed Major League Baseball uh, art show. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of their shows are normally not bound by licensing rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really kind of the beauty of the entire gallery. You get to, to attack pop culture things from your own perspective, kind of un, untethered by any sort of restrictions. Mm-hmm. So this show was unique in that it was licensed. Like the, the, the artwork in the show needed to be adhered to certain guidelines based around each team and the league. So there was like a multi-layered issue of team licensing, league licensing, and some player licensing, which is like the trifecta of horrible licensing <laughs> notes. Um, so, you know, I grew up in New York, so I'm a fan of New York teams. So I was like, this is going to be perfect for, for me, and you know, my biggest show of the year was was New York Comic Con, and I just wanted to do these because I knew they would kill. And this, it kind of it went along with my whole charts maps uh, shows that I've done there before. So, you know, we I had done the final art for this stuff, and there we submitted them to the MLB, and there were so many licensing issues with getting it made that it was just not possible. So something that I do with a lot of my maps and stuff, this one being in particular a subway map of, of New York, but done yeah. in the, with, um, with the, the logos of the Mets and the Yankees, each of the subway stops had like a different name or location or year associated with the team, like world championships, whatever, or Yogi Berra or whatever, mm-hmm. Shea stadium. And the league came back and said that every single word on there needed to be approved individually and licensed Boy. separately outside of just the fact of it being the Yan- Yankees, Mets, and Major League Baseball. And I was like, well, that's obviously not possible. It would be approval hell for the next century trying yeah. to get 200 individual things licensed on one poster. So then they were like, so I was like, well, that's not going to happen. That's just crazy. And then they were like, well, okay, well, you can draw it by hand and we'll let you do that if it's a one-off unique piece. I'm like, I'm not going to fucking draw a map, a subway map by hand. So it was it it was a real bummer because we went back and forth for like 10 or 15 rounds of revisions to try to get that one to work. And we just could not get it approved. And... We had to, we just had to kill it, unfortunately. Ah, bummer. Yeah, it sucks. We, I, I mean, just between us, I was gonna do a run of my own for New York Comic Con, but guess what? There's no more New York Comic Con this ah. year. <laughs> That's on the back burner for a while. You just can't win. No, it's, it's nothing. Nothing good has been happening. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Okay, let me see what else I'm gonna try and pull another gem out of this one. Hmm. Okay, this is freaking cool. Okay, this is uh, this is another one I'm going to share. This is from May of this year. 
Oh, yeah, Frankenstein. Frankenstein, that ended up being a poster. Tell me about this one. Yeah, that was a licensed uh, poster for Bottleneck. Uh, they just got the Universal Monsters license with, with Vice Press. And, you know, they I started out their series with the... Uh, with a, a licensed screen print of, of Frankenstein, and that would that turned out to be a huge, uh, hugely popular poster for me. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a lot of fun to do that one because monsters are kind of my jam. So yeah. getting the opportunity to like work on Frankenstein officially was was really cool. Um, and I've kind of had that <clears throat> idea kicking in my head for a long time. So finally, we're like literally had it done within like two weeks and they were like, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> so you just like rushed it and hammered it out just out of pure excitement. Yeah. It, Cause you know, sometimes for me anyway, the longest part of trying to figure out, um, a poster or any sort of con- of any sort of project really is the concept yeah. phase. Um, just trying to figure out what I'm trying to say or what the main idea is, what the concept is that, that takes me by far the longest out of any part of the design process, mm-hmm. even more so than than just executing. So I think for this one it was just in my head for so long that I was when when I finally got the go ahead to, to work on Universal Monsters, that uh, that immediately like spilled out of my brain onto a piece of paper, <laughs> or rather onto the computer screen that was then printed later. Yeah, just had that one locked and loaded and ready to go. Yeah, that was ready, and then, but I wasn't ready when they asked me to continue the series, and I was like, "Oh shit!" Now I gotta come up with something else for for another monster. <laughs> like, I wasn't expecting it to get this far. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> That's cool, man. So, I would imagine that working in that sort of TV and movie space, there's lots of ups, there's lots of downs. So, I want to now get into a couple of tough questions about some challenges and such mistakes you've made lessons you've learned, things like that. Um, then we'll spin it around after that and finish up in a happy place. Okay. Um, okay. first up, what's been the most challenging time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging and how did you get through it? Uh, well, I, I'd, I'd probably have to say, well, there's, there's kind of two times that stick out, but mm-hmm. the one right now that we're living in, and I think, the same goes for a lot of other designers that are kind of living through this pandemic of um, not only having your actual cash flow being disrupted by multiple things, including not having conventions, projects being canceled, companies going out of business, the mail system being messed with. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things are issues, but on top of that, there's this whole not being able to be inspired by anything like most of the time I'm just sitting around depressed and anxious. And for me personally, that's not really something that's too conducive to being creative. Um, especially when a lot of the times I need to go out and travel and go to museums and go to stores and interact with people and go to conventions Mm -hmm. to be able to want to get motivated to make new work and to be like a prisoner in this tiny apartment for so long and it's still not being safe enough to be able to go out and and look for ways to be inspired and not constantly anxious is Mm -hmm. is just really kind of it's it's a tough time right now i think not just for me but for everybody yeah it's such a weird time and you know 
anytime there's any sort of economic uncertainty, and I've said this before, I mean, the first thing that companies cut is that marketing budget. As soon as that marketing budget gets cut, that's affecting illustrators, graphic designers further down the line. That's infecting printers and web guys. That's affecting, you know, people who are usually doing distribution for those products. Like it just affects everything down the line from that. Yeah, there's an entire supply chain that's being affected by that. And budgets are being like slowly but surely cut down to the point where you're asked, you're being asked for the same for even less money now. And it's like, well, I can't say no because I, I need to pay my bills now and there's there's so little to go around. Yeah. So, yeah, that I mean, that's that's really challenging. And on top of that, the people that are working at these companies, the designers, the art directors, the project managers are now worried about their own jobs and yeah. their own work because there's we're seeing now a lot of companies are starting to lay off people and like, you know, now those people are now looking for their own jobs. And I've had a few instances where, you know, I've had contacts that companies lose their jobs and then reach out to me for work. And I'm like, that's like, I don't like you were my contact. Yeah. So, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's challenging for both sides of that, that client and, and designer relationship right now, as well as like, you know, not not only for corporate work, but you know, even for for just the poster stuff that I do. Like, you know, I want to be able to give work to printers and stuff, but at the same time, I have a hard time dropping a ton of money on a big print project and not knowing if I can sell it all online, especially when I, I rely a lot on conventions to be able to sell mm-hmm. that stuff. So, it's you know, it's a challenging time, but um, you know, hopefully at some point, uh, you know, we'll get through it. Yeah, it'll all turn around, no problem. But uh, <laughs> it's definitely not comfortable, that's for sure. Yeah. So you had mentioned that there was a couple of times that stand out as the most challenging. So right now, pandemic time, a lot of struggle, a lot of uncertainty, like 100%. Um, <laughs> what was that other time that you wanted to mention? Uh, it was kind of a polar opposite of right now. So it was one extreme to the other. I think the other time that really stands out is in my time when I lived in New York city, mm-hmm. um, I've been in LA now for almost like three and a half to four years. And mm-hmm. before that we, we had lived in Manhattan and at the time I was working in house at Nickelodeon. Um, and at the same time as working at Nickelodeon, I was really starting to pick things up with my freelance business. Mm-hmm. So I was working from like nine to five and then, I would get home, eat dinner, and then work from like seven to two or three a.m. So it was working. It was too, it was a time when there was too much work and too much pressure, and trying to balance two full time jobs at the same time, all while trying to handle an online shop and doing conventions at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I I think back on those days now and like, wow, I I was so crazy busy back then. And now it's like, I'm still working, but at the same time, like I have other anxieties that are completely different from back Mm -hmm. then. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I look back on that as, you know, an overwhelming time of work compounded by the fact that I lived in the middle of New York city, which is like the stress capital of the world. Yeah. I mean, really, all we want is three or four projects a month that pay 10 grand each 
at a nice steady pace with a great work-life balance. I don't think that's too much to ask for. I prefer, you know what? I prefer the bigger projects. Yeah, one project for 40 grand then. Yeah, those are the good ones. And then it lasts you a couple months. Yeah, those are the good ones. Because you get to focus on one thing for a couple months and it's not so... Because a lot of times when you have the smaller projects, the timelines on them are just so crazy Mm -hmm. that it's a little bit more stressful. And that's a lot of the work that I was doing at the time in New York. Now... You know, I've moved more into that, again, that, that more creative direction space where I'm working on bigger style guides for bigger movies that have bigger timelines as well. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, that those kind of projects fit my, my new California lifestyle a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> the new California lifestyle. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, the one where I stay in my apartment all the time because I can't go outside. Yeah, exactly. Where you just kind of look out the window and wish you were surfing or something. Yeah, well, not really. It's kind of yellow outside from all the wildfires. Yuck. <laughs> um, so, Anthony, I want to get a little bit more specific with this next one. Can you take us to a specific designer project that you were a part of that did not go well or bring the desired result? What was that like? How did that feel? Can you take us to that project? Uh, yeah, actually, I had one recently. Um, I'm not going to mention the project specifically. Good. Because it didn't end well, but it was uh, it was part of a big compendium project. Um, it was actually just released recently, but I was not part of the final product. Um, and the the problem with that was the approval process for the entire thing was just completely ridiculous. It had a lot to do with likeness issues and licensing and and actor approvals, which isn't out of the ordinary. All those things are always a little ridiculous, mm-hmm. but. At the same time, I was also being extremely impatient, mm-hmm. and um, I got really annoyed and dropped out of the project, basically, as, <laughs> as I was finishing up the artwork. Um, so I think a lot of that had to do with um, me not being very professional in the situation, if I'm being honest, but mm-hmm. at the same time, um, there's, there's certain things that I, I don't really compromise on. And I have to remind myself of that time, even though some, some, I have to remind myself of that from time to time, especially if I'm working on projects that I'm kind of enamored by, which was this one that specifically was kind of right on my alley. Mm-hmm. But um, just a, a brief synopsis, it was they basic they basically wanted me to take a, a the main press photo from a movie and then trace it exactly in my style. So it just cut out a whole bunch, but I heard they wanted you to trace <laughs> the main press photo for this for this this movie or whatever it was, and then where did you go from there? Yeah, so so they they, they basically just wanted me to use the regular press photo from the movie, and you know I thought it was a little bit lazy and uncreative. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I did, what I normally do for my poses, is I took my own pose reference photos of myself. Mm-hmm. And then work the actors head onto it, and I felt good about that. You know, being able to put work out like that. And there were so many crazy notes and drawovers for the likeness that um, it just wasn't working. And even when we got to a place where everyone was good with it, they said they didn't like it because my hands, the hands in the picture, were too fat. <laughs> and and I got at that point, I got so mad because they were my hands. <laughs> and that that wasn't the reason, but at that point, at, in the stage of the project, it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, and I was like, "I'm I'm done with this. Find someone else. I'm sorry." Yeah. 
<laughs> hands were too fat. That was the note. That was the note that really just killed me because we had gotten to a point on the likeness that everyone was okay with, and then they were like, "The hands are too fat," and I was just, I was just so pissed. Yeah, that's it. Okay, see you later. That's where I draw the line. Don't ever tell me. That, that's always the kind of the tough part about using yourself as reference in in making poses and stuff for posters because a lot of times the notes are like, "Well, the, the body's too fat," and I'm like, "Fuck you, dude. That's my body." <laughs> jeez yeah oh man so that one that one just it felt at that point i'm sure you just felt that this is not for you you should not be spending any more time on this time to move on to something else it was yeah at that point i was just kind of so done with it and we were we're we're taking too long on it it was taking up way too many revisions for the amount that they were paying and i it, it was just in everyone's best interest that they just found someone else, I thought. And I wasn't like an asshole about it. I didn't tell them about the fat fingers thing. Um, I just told them that, you know, this this isn't working out for either of us. And I, I think it's time for me to move on. And and that was kind of the end of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I saw the final project that had come out when they replaced me with it, I was like, look at those a fingers. little bit. Yeah, well, they just the artists that they had just did exactly what they wanted, which I didn't want to do. So I didn't feel too terrible about it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I was a little bit, you know, had that little bit of FOMO, you know, at that point. But yeah. um, I, I don't regret dropping out of that. I feel like the artwork just wasn't really, um, it wasn't really up to snuff for for what I really wanted to to do for it because of all the revisions. So. Yep. Yeah, when it doesn't feel right, you just gotta just gotta cut ties. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Anthony, I want to turn this around now, and I want to ask you about a project that you've been a part of that you are the most proud of. Just one of the projects you've been a part of in the last number of years of your career um, that just makes your heart sing. You just feel real good about it. Uh, you know, you know, we talked about this before. It's a tough one because um, a lot of the stuff that I'm most proud of is stuff that I recently finished mm-hmm. and is not out yet. And I would love to be able to talk about it because there, there's stuff that's, that's really, really cool. And if it was like a week later, if this was like oh, a week later, man. we could talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but since, since that stuff is, um, well, this, po- this podcast NBA. will not come out for two weeks. Okay. Well, you know what? I still can't. I can't do it. You can't break the law. Oh, you can't break the. Uh, all right, yeah. all right. I tried to get you. I tried to get you. It's all good, Anthony. <laughs> but uh, I think one. I think a a project. It's actually a, a project that is a yearly project for me. That that stands out right now. That I reminisce on and and kind of nostalgic and about and and missing right now is I, I designed the booth for Nickelodeon for San Diego Comic-Con every year. Oh, cool. And um, this is the first time in six years where I haven't done it. And aside from the fact that it's a it's a big money project for me um, every year that I can rely on, just the fact that there aren't conventions and I can't do this project is just very depressing <laughs> to mm-hmm. me. So I think that's one that I, that I wished I... I could have done this year. However, I would say the last year's booth that that I worked on was uh, a thing that I look back on and and I'm I'm proud of how it came out, and I'm I'm proud that it's it wasn't just a me only project. It was a a project that 
that I work with a number of teams on to coordinate this kind of huge project mm -hmm. that 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 culminated uh, really really incredibly at, at the show last year. So I think you know that that last year's in particular you know stands out to me the most. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Like, like what did it feature? Does it had like the classic Nickelodeon, like pouring slime on people as they walk past? Like, <laughs> last so last year was the anniversary of SpongeBob, so we actually nice. built a huge bikini bottom. It was a life size, two scale, Krusty Krab, boating school, and Chum Bucket that you could actually like walk into. It was really. The, 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 it was definitely the most ambitious uh, interactive booth that that I've worked on for sure, and I think the one of the better ones that they've ever done for for Nickelodeon, and um, and you know that was definitely one of the crazier projects that I've been involved in. But um, basically, it took up the entire space of. I'm not sure if you're if you've ever been to San Diego Comic Con at all. Or, no, I haven't. Okay. So the, you know, the space is like, you know, a hundred feet by 50 feet Jeez. is what you've got to work with. So, and this, this giant structure basically went up to the ceiling of the convention center. It, it was just massive and it kind of, it really stood out on the floor there, I think. And, and fans really, really went crazy for it. It was basically like a big photo op that you can interact with. So that's a massive, massive space. It's huge, and it's you know, it's something that like you should have more experience with knowing how to do that stuff than I do than I have. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> it's just like a big engineering feat. Yeah. And granted, I don't really work on the functional structural parts of it. We actually have a vendor named Glow Studios that does all the fabrication, but yeah. At the same time, I'm. The whole goal of these booths for Nickelodeon at, at the conventions is to bring the show to life. Yes. So it's a lot of illustrating and painting to scale um, that gets printed really large. So it makes you feel like you're like inside the show. So you know, I'm I'm drawing these giant panels and figuring out how this two-dimensional object from a show is going to be built out in 3d and what all four walls are going to look like, wow. you know, if you're right standing right next to them. So it, it's, it's a really, really challenging and exhausting and super fun project, um, that I'm probably just not qualified to be doing, but somehow they keep letting me, uh, <laughs> work on it every year. <laughs> so modest Anthony. So you create, like the big, beautiful visuals, the real experience of this booth. And then you partner with this vendor and you guys work together to bring it to life. Yeah, to that's, make it, that's really... To fulfill like the engineering requirements of making your vision work. Yeah, and that's, that's you know, a lot of credit goes to the fabricators for figuring out the actual fabrication and engineering of the base structure that yeah. this thing sits on. Mm -hmm. But the way that it's made is actually pretty simple. A lot of it is really printed on vinyl and mounted to gator board. And then we kind of build out the entire structure and process wise, a really good one-to-one -one 
way of designing it is I've always built the actual thing myself to scale that sits on my desk um, just to figure out how it looks when you walk through it and you yeah. photograph the model from different angles. So I think because it's it's a simple structure, you can actually build it on a paper. And then actually I've, I've always built the booth at my desk every year just to see like how the different graphics are working with each other and how <laughs> that's cool. the painted shadows work and, and sticking a small camera in and seeing like how you would walk around the space. So, you know, it, it I think it's applicable because to me it's really a, a giant print project. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not like um, you're, you're building stuff out of concrete and figuring out how to sculpt it. It's really, you're, you're drawing or I'm drawing these huge panels and it gets printed and it gets put in the space. So I think it's relevant to, to print world more than, than maybe like an engineering industrial design kind of angle. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious now, was there any crossover between your time at Nickelodeon and Sean Adams? Did you ever work with Sean Adams there? No, I don't know who that is. No, okay. okay. I was in I was in New York, so Nickelodeon has a an office out here in Burbank also. So there's, there's kind of two there's kind of two main headquarters. Yeah, I think you probably would have been out of the California one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't I was in Times Square at the time. All good. Times Square, good spot to be. <laughs> awesome. Uh, that was, well, that was a tough yeah, <laughs> Anthony, you've reached the point of the show for the ask it forward question. That's where I have a question for you from my last guest, and you get the opportunity to ask a question of my next guest. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but you can ask them anything. Okay. So first off, my previous guest was Emma Fanning from Little Fox Design Studio out of Victoria, British Columbia here on Vancouver Island. And she wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on the role of the designer sort of over the next 10 years when it comes to climate justice and the social justice? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I think um, I'm not sure that I would that I would segment it in a way of what what we can do as artists or what we can do as doctors or what we can do as engineers, but what we can do as people nice. and human beings, I think like we're so segmented and divided as it is, as, as human beings that we lose sight of kind of the bigger picture and mm-hmm. of what we're going through as a whole, as humans and what we're doing to the environment, what we're doing to our own people. So, you know, I, I don't really know what we can do as an artist to be able to lend our services to that cause. I'm sure anything we do would be noble, but I think getting out of our offices and forgetting the fact that we're bound to our professions and, you know, protesting the current world yeah. and getting out and volunteering and helping um, people um with these social justice causes and, you know, helping get the word out about, you know, the, the injustices that are happening around the world. And especially when it comes to, to climate, um, is I think, I think that we need to take a step back a bit and, and figure out what we can do as people, uh, more so than what, what we can do as artists. I think, um, our knee-jerk reaction is like, well, how can my profession help the world? But um, that's only going to take us 
so far. You know, it, it's going to be our actions and and what we do outside of our offices that that really counts. And being in the middle of, you know, I live in downtown LA, and mm-hmm. there's protests here pretty much every day. And and just being a part of those and mm-hmm. being there to support the the people who are fighting for their for their rights and for their for their lives and for the earth, I think um, it's a good start. Definitely, I love that answer, and I love how you circled it back into you know rather than looking into your own little segment of, you know, your profession or where your skills and abilities lie. Like, let's look at this as just as people and come together as people. How can we make an impact in these things? Yeah, I think some, I think it's, I think we always try to find what the easiest way to help is. And we, we fall back on the thing that we know the most, Mm -hmm. but I think, um, we all have to challenge ourselves to, to get out of our comfort zones Mm -hmm. Uh, and to try to make real change that way. Nice. Great point. I like that, Anthony. Um, what is the question you would like to ask the next guest? Uh, okay, I'll keep this one pretty easy. Um, how important is process in design? Oh. <laughs> so, Anthony, how important is process in design? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I didn't know I was going to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll let you look uh, on this one. I, well, I think it's it's a... I think it's a tougher question than 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 it seems. I think there's there's two schools of thought on it. Mm-hmm. I think the one which I see pretty often is it doesn't matter how you got there as long as it looks good in the end. Mm-hmm. And I think to a degree that's technically right. However, there's that's a sentiment a sentiment that I've seen thrown around more by art directors than than artists. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I think the process is important more so to the artist than the client. Mm-hmm. I think the consumer finds the process intriguing, you know, to see how things are made and that process, seeing that process may lend value to a product or a piece of art, Mm -hmm. but the process as it pertains to the designer or the artist is important in, I think, providing a connection to the artwork and maybe even a sense of pride or ownership having been through, uh, you know, however they, they decided to create their, their piece or their product. Uh, actually one of my good friends and my, my former college roommate actually wrote a book called the reward is in the process. Nice. Uh, his name's Tim Balonics and he's a, he's a designer at, at Pinterest now. But, um, if you, if you want to look that, that book up, but, uh, I think the title of that book is a great way to summarize that sentiment. Well said, man. Anthony, I think that's a great way to wrap this up. Thank you so much for being my guest on the Quickie Podcast today, man. It was great getting to see and talk to the man behind Zombie Bacons. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dave. I appreciate it. All right, all right. That is the end of today's episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. If you are digging what you're hearing on the Quickie Podcast here, please head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and a review, and subscribe to the show. I'd really appreciate it. I love reading them. They make me feel slightly taller than I am at a robust five foot four. Thanks again. And you have to go to this guest's Instagram handle and check out the amazing work that they are sharing. And also a beautiful photo of Anthony right beside none other than Weird Al. That's right. He met Weird Al. I should have asked him about that one. Damn it. Oh, well, next time. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you later.